you know, identity is not something, at least primordially from first it's chosen, you know, it's something that's given, you know, we are called into existence, you know, Mm -hmm. with the identity, yes, of being created in the image and likeness of God. Also with this, you know, identity of, of being in Adam that we, we must be rescued from because really, and, and most fully the, you know, the identity we are meant to have as being created in the image and likeness of God is to be in Christ. Yep. There's a real sense the great spiritual authors will say this too. You know, God wants to see Christ in us. He wants to bring that about in yeah. us. All right, friends, welcome to Beyond Damascus. This is a special episode today where we'll be interviewing uh, a guest by the name of Dr. Matthew Minard. And I wanted to kick us off a little bit. If you're new to the show, of course, Beyond Damascus is the show where encounter meets mission. Uh, We operate here on a campus in um, central Ohio, as well as remotely Catholic youth summer camp at two regional campuses, one in Wisconsin this year and the other in Michigan, the Great Lakes campus. We're about the work of evangelization because we believe that when you come into an authentic experience of relationship with Jesus, that your life will sort of by necessity be launched into a place of missional response. And we see that happening every day here at Damascus. Right now we're in the midst of our Catholic youth summer camp season. So if if you've uh, if you've been a fan of the show, you've heard us talking about Catholic Youth Summer Camp and making plugs for our missionary program, especially here serving the young people of of Catholic Youth Summer Camp. This week here at our main campus, we've got close to 500 students and another about 100 at each of our regional campuses as well. So we're really about the work of introducing young people to a relationship with Jesus in a way that will transform their lives and. My firm belief is that you can be a part of that in uh, being aligned with the work of evangelization. Um, Each one of us, as we encounter the person of Jesus, uh, has a call that's placed on our lives. And when you respond to that call, you'll find that you are more effectively coming in to understand the person that you were made to be, right? That uh, St. John Paul II, he says, man can only come to know himself through a sincere gift of himself. And the way that we give ourselves away is by making that, uh, that, that, that missional decision in our lives. So whether you're joining us for the first time or whether you're a longtime fan, welcome to Beyond Damascus, the show where encounter meets mission. And today we're going to be taking a, a little bit of a different angle on uh, maybe what you, you typically associate with evangelization and mission. And of course, in order to do that, I'd love to welcome our guest for the day. Uh, Dr. Matthew Minard. Welcome, Dr. Matthew. Well, thank you for having me, Aaron. Absolutely. Thanks for joining on the show. And I guess uh, to kick things off right away, uh, Dr. Matthew, you're here today um, because of uh, really a a lot of passion and uh, love that you have for the church that's being communicated, most especially through the new book that you've written with Ascension Press uh, called Made by God and Made for God. Um, tell me about the book as we, as we kick off, uh, give us, give us a quick, quick summary of kind of, uh, what's the, what's the theme of the book and, and what brought you to the place of releasing it here with Ascension? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So the book is, uh, in a way my, we could think of it as sort of my ministry of bringing the, the fruits of my teaching as a moral theology professor 
in seminary. So I teach Byzantine Catholics, Eastern Catholics, though I also do teach actually Roman Catholics for uh, Holy Apostles College and Seminary as well. So I wanted to take the fruits of that teaching and then yep. recommunicate it in a way that was far more accessible just to general readers. And I was approached okay. by one of the editors at um, uh, Ascension, Ascension. Yeah, yeah. To, to do this. So kind of found a way to speak in a very scriptural language, a very down-to-earth language, however, based on the, the, the difficult theology that's all hidden. Uh, yeah. like it's hidden under the word of God, so it's a better place for it to be hidden, right? So, um, yeah, so to try and do that, some big themes of Catholic moral theology. Good. So Catholic moral theology is the name of the game uh, for today's for today's show and for today's interview. We'll be talking a little bit about um, some of the concepts that are developed over the course of this book. But I I, I love you know my life was uh, my life was transformed. Um, one of the one of the most powerful encounters that I ever had with with Jesus was in college. Uh, I don't even know when it was introduced to me, but this concept of living a life of heroic virtue. And that that phrase itself, it really reset for me my own experience of, of what Catholicism could be like, right? Oftentimes we sort of have this perspective that, that Catholicism is a faith that's driven by uh, legalism or, uh, you know, an, an intellectual pursuit. And oftentimes I think virtue and morality kind of fall into that same judgment category, right? But truly living a life of, of authentic um, Catholic morality, living a life of, of heroic virtue is, you know, just what the phrase implies. It's, it's a heroic pursuit and one that can bring you to a place of really experiencing the adventure of the lives of the saints, right? That, that this is a, this is a call that's available to each of us. So I'm, I'm excited to dive in a little bit. Um, Dr. Matthew, just, as, a, as a, I guess, a kickoff, you, you made a statement that I want to make sure that all of our, our listeners heard and understand. So uh, you come, you're a Ruthenian Catholic, okay, mm -hmm. which is, a, which is a, a Byzantine, of the Byzantine tradition. Um, give us a little background on the, the Ruthenian tradition of the church. Yeah, the Ruthenians are, you know, effectively, uh, they're Russian Orthodox who, you know, hundreds of years ago came into union with Rome. They're, if you've ever maybe run into Ukrainian Catholics, we're just another subsection mm -hmm. of Ukraine mixed in, though, because the borders were different with uh, Poland yep. and basically Transcarpathia is, yep. is the area. And so there are a lot of us in Western Pennsylvania, well, Pennsylvania, the Rust Belt, Ohio. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I although I was raised a Roman Catholic, I later on through just spiritual changes in my life and discernment uh, became a, an Eastern Catholic. I don't think we have any good demographics on our, on our listenership as far as what tradition of Catholicism they, uh, they align with, but I suspect that most of our listeners are Roman Catholic. Mm -hmm. And if you are Roman Catholic listening to the show today, uh, understand that, yeah, there's a variety of different rights and expressions within Catholicism that are in union with the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, if you've not had the chance to explore or to visit or to learn from some of those other uh, faith expressions, it can be a, a beautiful insight into just uh, an amazing and rich tradition and a, and a different way of expressing. So I'm excited, Dr. Matthew, to see uh, today maybe how some of your experience in the Ruthenian church has in fact informed your expression of moral theology. 
I was recently in the Holy Land, and uh, and there you do see an expression of many of the different traditions of Catholicism, um, as evident in the architecture of the churches and the way that they're designed, and it's just a beautiful insight into sort of the the universal universality of of the expression of Catholicism. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Doctor Matthew, what? Well, well, go for it. What were you going to say? Sorry. No, no, no. The only thing that was on my mind actually was, you know, so the, the book is a kind of uh, marriage of East and West because I've been trained in a Western context and I'm writing for a Western audience. There's there's uh, a sort of Byzantinization of being a, a reader of St. Thomas Aquinas is yeah. what, what yeah. I think is underneath the hood of the book. So St. Thomas, that's the key to, that's the key to the Roman Catholic heart. Uh, yeah, but to, there's a lot to to that overlaps. <laughs> there's a lot that overlaps more than people like to make it. No, I totally, of course. Uh, beautiful. Well, hey, uh, I, I just want to ask, kind of, your heart and your connection, and 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 how this how this happened for you. You know, as we kick off, it, it's good to see the expression of mission, especially evident through through speakers and teachers and writers and. Uh, like we say on the show, this is the show where encounter meets mission. I'm wondering if you could maybe kick us off in, in sharing briefly your own faith journey and how you came to the place of teaching and, and practicing the faith. Sure. Yeah. I'll try to be very, I'll try to be as direct as possible. Um, raised in a relatively I mean, lukewarm, might be a little bit rough, but relatively lukewarm Catholic family. Um, but I had a couple of very good <clears throat> pastors in Western Pennsylvania. And I had a, a great fortune of uh, a number of very holy uh, monastic figures that I knew when I was an undergraduate mm. at a little college in the area, St. Vincent College, a number of figures who actually really influenced me and, and just, I mean, inspired me. To, to see did you the, ever did you ever run into Father Fred Burns there? Yeah, he's. I figured I I had a thought in the back of my mind. He was my campus minister. Actually, oh, beautiful! When I was yeah. uh, there, and I would presume you know Boniface Father Boniface Hicks. Yes, yes. Yeah, so he actually was. He's actually the uh, endorser on the back here. Uh, Father hey. Father Boniface and I go way back. These were That's men. They great. were really impressive. I mean, I was just a local yokel kid from Western Pennsylvania, and I'd never even uh -huh. seen something like this. Um. So, and I, I worked for a couple of years as a software engineer and I actually lived as a Benedictine monk there at St. Vincent for three years. So I was on a Father Fred, Father Boniface's conference. Yeah. Um, and then I ended up discern, discerning out, um, didn't really plan to get married, but ended up getting married uh, because I was really sure whenever I met my wife that I, like what people experience with the priesthood or religious life, I experienced with marriage and the, the sort of, if you will be in trouble with me providentially, God was saying to me, if you don't marry this woman. <laughs> Which really, I, I thought I was going to be an academic, you know. Just, just cut to the chase. Yeah. <laughs> so I, yeah, I moved back to Western. Well, I live in Western Pennsylvania, near to, near where I uh, grew up. I teach for the Ruthenian Church, which I joined after a few years of actually going to the old, the old form of the Latin Mass. Never really felt at home, but I was a monk at heart, so liturgy has always been very important for me. Fell right in love with the Ruthenian Church uh, after a couple of experiences where the liturgy wasn't said well, but after that, I went somewhere with a really holy pastor. And it was it was really just uh, almost immediate that I kind of knew I found home. And I ended up, uh, by happenstance, a couple phone calls as I'm finishing my doctorate, uh, get the academic dean in touch with me from the Byzantine Seminary. And he, you know, uh, extends a couple courses to me to teach. And at the time, I was thinking, I don't want to be a professor, actually. I'm done with this. I finished my PhD. Mm -hmm. I actually probably, there's some mark on my heart that's whatever, you know, it's it's whatever was part of what led me to think that not only was I called to the uh, monastic life, but to the priesthood, yeah. some some kind of you know teaching as an evangelical kind of uh, exercise. 
So I thought, Lord, you know, I really have to take this up because I'm, I was in the process of changing canonically. I probably, you're probably calling me to go to the seminary to teach. Um, don't really want to do it. I really want to sort of change my career. I didn't have any idea what I'd do, but I was going to figure out what to do. Um, and really, you know, I shouldn't say I haven't looked back. Sometimes I do look back. I feel a little bit like, um, you know, Abraham. Well, I feel like, yeah, anyway, I feel like the doubting figures in providential history, you know, mm -hmm. asking our Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing with me? Um, but you know, I, uh, I, I do, I do find that, uh, it's a real blessing to teach priesthood candidates for my little church. And I find it to be just such a wonderful thing to be able to, none of them in the deacons to teach those who are going to be preaching on these matters. Uh, and I've really grown to love teaching actually general of all the classes, general moral theology. I just think yeah. it's great because you get to teach people about their real identity in Christ and mm -hmm. the divine vocation that we all have by grace. So I, you know, just have kept going along and doing my other academic work, uh, which is all sort of an extension of teaching. I do a lot of translating. And the, the reason I do that is I try to find texts um, that I think are useful for, for professors, actually, uh, yeah. to be able to use or be formed by, because I want those to be used to form their forming of students or the forming of parishioners. Um, so, yeah. The the connection that you drew between morality and identity, I think, is a, is a really good one. Identity has kind of become one of those hot hot button words mm -hmm. in the culture today, and it's uh, it identity. You know, the the theology around your around your Christian identity, around your human identity, around your baptismal identity. It it is it's one of the cornerstones here of at Damascus of our missionary formation, and you know all. All throughout, of course, philosophy and theology, it's it's it, it's uh, it's evident throughout history, right? You can't you can't escape from a theology or an understanding of of uh, of our moral theology without without starting from the standpoint that that we understand that created in the image and likeness of God, that we're not going to be happy until we're aligned with that, right? Uh, we ran a retreat here a couple of years ago for um, a high school a high school class, and I was I had the great pleasure of of teaching sort of a a crash course in identity theology, um, and we, we I made that connection from Aristotle that uh, the happiness of a thing can be determined by its alignment with what it was created to do with with its form. Right. And, and our, our deepest desire as a human person maybe would be to, to, to be happy, to be fulfilled. And what most people don't realize is that that happiness and that fulfillment comes when you do what you were made for, right? When, when the, the engine is running on all cylinders and, uh, short of that, you know, we find ourselves as a culture and as individuals in a, in a, a messy place. People, you know, people want to, I mean, you think about how somebody talk about identity, you know, we, we assign our identities to ourselves and then, you know, yep. we assign our identities to ourselves and then we go and we try to basically live in accord with that identity. I mean, this is so evident in some of the movements too, right? That there's a certain subculture that develops, et cetera, right? But, you know, identity is not something, at least primordially from first it's chosen, you know, it's something that's yeah. given, you know, we are called into existence, you know. Mm -hmm with the identity yes of being created in the image and likeness of god also with this you know identity of of being in adam 
that we we must be rescued from because really and and most fully the you know the identity we are meant to have as being created in the image and likeness of god is to be in christ yep there's a real sense the great spiritual authors will say this too you know god wants to see christ in us he wants to bring that about in us um that everything was created for christ so that we might be incorporated into him our identity really is to be christ i think um saint jose jose maria escriva would all mm-hmm. often talk in very powerful terms this way and i'm not actually very adjacent to the opus day world but he has some really striking quotes about how our vocation is to be in a sense christ himself because that's yeah. what grace extends to us um that god you know touches us through creation and then touches us so to speak through gracing that he, he yeah. gives us our identity our configuration to Christ. And then we live with the activity that that can't be anything other than flourishing. Yeah. If we live in accord with that identity. And so many people are adrift, right? Looking for identity. Yeah. For various reasons. Because of the, the, the sexual movements, yes, but because of family issues, because yep. of you know lack of identity in in um local cultures, in nations, all of that. You know, we can bring I mean, a real, it's a healing. I hate to sound too therapeutic. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a, it is a kind of healing of soul is what the Christian life is because it heals us by, you know, like the man on the way, on the road to, um, over to Jericho, um, mm-hmm. you know, that, that is picked up by Christ uh, and is healed as the fathers read, read that parable. Um, yeah, anyway, just sorry, my random thoughts. Yeah. Very important no, for youths, especially this question of identity and our, our truth. But let's, uh, let's press in there a little bit. In, in, even in the, the intro to the book, you, you identify sort of this danger that we see in the culture of um, an us versus them mentality where we, we sort of align, our temptation is to align with a particular movement. Uh, and then we, we, we adopt the perspective and the personality and, and we sort of lose ourselves in the midst of that. I remember um, this was, I don't know, 10, 10 plus years ago, uh, I, was, I was working as a youth minister uh, for high school students and a local pastor made the statement that when it comes to understanding our sexual identity specifically, that the, the only proper sexual orientation is actually to God, right? <laughs> and when we, when we understand our, our heart must be first and foremost oriented toward the Lord, Right, that that's that that's where our identity comes from. You know, I suppose maybe a little sloppy in terms of language, but that that just really clicked for me. Mm-hmm. That, uh, you know, what is it? I don't know. What is it that you think predisposes the world to to go off course there? And and how how have you found? And what are you trying to express through the book that that kind of leads us back into a place of finding our center? What what predisposes? You know, we could have grand theories, but guess what? It's sin. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. that's the effects. The simple, effects simple, religion. simple answer. <laughs> I mean, it's, but it's so obvious. It's the effects of original sin. It's the yeah. effects of personal sin. It's the effects of personal sin in other people's lives throughout the whole of history. I mean, think about what salvation history is. And I will tie this into morals. Salvation history is, is the story of basically God's working with this, this noxious environment that has been created mm-hmm. because of the misuse of freedom. But what does he do, right? He is, is he works through, especially with the people of Israel, he wants to transform them, to, to transfigure them. Um, and I mean, that's what grace is actually all about, is that we receive from the, the, the flowing abundance that is Christ active in his church, the beginning, the, well, 
the true beginning of salvation, which is to be taken from the state of sin and put into the state of the state of Christ. But it's we're still in via, as one would say, we're still wayfarers, we're still pilgrims in a sense. And so, you know, we have to work out our salvation as well, then that it's you know received in sanctifying grace. But then we have to act as reborn children so as to you know keep the old Adam at bay and to, to have the new Adam shine forth in our soul. We can't. Yeah, we can't even estimate the the grandeur of that gift either mm-hmm. given to us because it really is the gift of the Trinity dwelling in our, our hearts that and flows out to our minds. You can't get much more than that. <laughs> yeah, you can't. can't. Um, uh, yeah. in, in, the, in the Byzantine tradition, uh, Dr. Matthew, I'm, I'm curious, uh, have you had much interaction with the theology of the body of John Paul II? Well, I would have when I was a Roman Catholic. Um, uh-huh. You know, there are outposts of it in the Byzantine world. It's not as yeah. not as popular in the Byzantine world. Byzantine world's always trying to define itself somewhat like we're not Roman Catholics. I mean, they're still <laughs> Catholics, but they want to be Eastern. Yeah, it's a thing since the Second Vatican Council. They very much want to churches want to reappropriate their their traditions. Um, yeah, yeah. I was never influenced by the ton either. You know, I, I came of age. John Paul II would have been the Pope, but Benedict was very closer mm-hmm. was closer to my heart. Uh, there was something yeah. about, I mean, his love of liturgy, there's something he was, a, you know, he, he lives a monastic life at the end of his life. There's something about that that touched my soul yeah. as I was discerning the monastic life at the time, too. Um, so I just had a, a kind of a fellow feeling more with him. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I, I'm well aware of it. I have some classmates in the monastery who were very engaged yeah. in TOB stuff, but. Beautiful. Yeah. My, my only reason in mentioning it is, I mean, I, I suppose it's a human foundation as opposed to a theology of the body specific foundation but yeah you, you won't go wrong if you keep your your center focused on the fact that you're made in the image and likeness of god mm-hmm. right that that you're made to be in communion with him and and oftentimes uh, as i like to speak here to our missionaries and to students at damascus that you know when when we hear that we will often think that uh that that means that i'm supposed to image Jesus, that I'm supposed to become the, you know, become like Jesus, or even, you know, maybe in a less mature sense that I'm supposed to, that somewhere up in heaven is a, an old, an old guy with a big long beard sitting on a throne. And that's the one who made me to look like him. But the reality is we're, we're called to live in this dynamic relationship of Trinitarian love, where I learn what it's like to give and to receive with reckless abandon in a way that, in a way that brings me into uh, living like and ultimately being invited into the the expression of the Trinity, the experience of the Trinity. Yeah, we're and just, we're and, talking just slightly different language. My language is just yeah. so Thomistically influenced, but I mean, it's the same, yeah, it's the same point. Absolutely. Yeah, very good. Well, hey, you know, I, I would say as I as I read through and uh, and explored the book a little bit. Um, I think the biggest question that probably young people face, and you see this expressed online, you know, ad nauseum sometimes, that Catholicism is uh, is a list of things we can and can't do. And uh, I applaud your your bravery in tackling a book on on Catholic moral theology in the midst of that culture, right? What what do you say to to that uh, prevalent thought, right? That that. I want to be about Jesus and not about religion or not about the rules. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, you know, every uh, stereotype is based on a tiny, on a certain truth. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and there was, there was a long period where just for a number of reasons after the Protestant Reformation, moral theology very much became about law and freedom. So kind of, this is the question. It sounds like kind of like when you're a teenager asking how far you can go with your girlfriend, you know, how far am I free before I transgress a commandment? Um, you know, and then, you know, from a certain Protestant perspective, you can take certain things out of context in St. Paul, where he talks about the law and freedom, and you can do basically like what you, you know, what you just uh, said. It's like, I want to be about, you know, I want to be about being a friend of Christ, uh, but not be tied up in this idea of rules or something of something of that sort, as though friendship with Christ, friendship with the Trinity is not central for <laughs> moral life. It kind of is. Um, St. Thomas actually says the theological virtue of charity, the best analogy for it is actually friendship. Uh, and the love that is particular to friendship. But uh, but so, you know, you have to think about what's the purpose of law, first of all. Um, and, a, you know, law is a teacher. This is clear mm -hmm. in the, what's the purpose in the old covenant is is to be, you know, taught and formed. Um, and then what is the, what's the purpose of even living in the church, listening to the the long tradition of the church, the current teachings of the church and so forth, is to, is to teach not, but not for the sake of like limiting your freedom, but to, to give you actually true, True freedom in the classical sense, even, which was the idea that you are you're brought in. You know, the idea of the liberal arts is that you're taught to be free. You have to be formed yep. in freedom. And so in the end, you know, whatever might one might say about there are rules that exist and commandments, and you, you can't deny that. Go look at how the catechism is laid out and whatnot. But the commandments are a kind of instrument or a kind of tool for the fashioning of a freedom that is capable of not being turned on the self and the self's desires and and my own egoism and my own desire to dominate other people but to rather be free to allow christ to act within me to you know mm -hmm. you know it's i'm acting of course in freedom but to allow my freedom to be animated by christ configured love um and so ultimately the you know, rules are just a a pedagogue for something that's higher which is is really you know, when you think about the lives of the saints, you know, they don't, they don't get rid of asceticism, they don't get rid mm -hmm. of, um, you know, practices and disciplines, but they live a kind of life that's almost so free that there's a real sense in which you can say, uh, they're absolutely holy, I can't imitate them, because they, they almost seem crazy sometimes, right? Their particular, yeah. th that particular freedom they live is just amazing to watch the Holy Spirit blow through their life with a, a kind of divine flair. Um, yeah. And ultimately, that means actually, you know, when we talk about virtues and all all of this, right, law rules are meant to form us as virtuous agents. And like you said, it's authentic kind of heroic uh, love is what yeah. the life virtue is. And ultimately, our vocation is so high because of what the theological virtues are, faith, open charity. They're so mm -hmm. divine and so can they configure us to the Trinity that we actually need to have the gifts of the Holy Spirit to make us docile to God's activity in us if we want to be holy. Every single Christian by his or her baptism and then his or her yeah. confirmation is called to be a kind of instrument of the Holy Spirit. Beautiful. When you say gifts of the Holy Spirit, are you speaking of like the Isaiah's gifts from scripture or are you speaking right. from maybe a more no, uh, charismatic renewal perspective? No, I'm speaking in terms of Isaiah's gifts. So okay. it is, I mean, thank you for clarifying because you know, I live uh -huh. in the, I mean, I do know how to make these distinctions, but I live in sort of the Thomist world, the gifts are sort of di uh, distinguished from the charismatic gifts, and then yep. the purifying of our minds and and of our our virtues. 
by beautiful. By, yeah. So I, uh, I will not say I don't have a doctorate in theology, Dr. Matthew, but I did, uh, I did study theology in my undergrad. And I actually, I wrote my, uh, my senior thesis on Thomas Aquinas on the gifts of the spirit. So it's a topic that oh. is, that is close to my heart and one that I, I still love to speak on to this day. Uh, I love that St. Thomas sort of, uh, he suggests that the gifts of the spirit are in a sense a foretaste of the experience of the resurrection of the, the, the resurrection of the body, right? That, that when we, when we actually exercise the gifts of the spirit, we, we exercise as we will in heaven. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it, I, I think there's, there's just a great, a great connection and alignment there. Um, I'm curious if two words came to my mind as you were speaking. The first is freedom, of course, and then the second would be obedience, freedom and obedience, or, or you know, as we see in Scripture, specifically in Ephesians chapter five, like um, mutual sub subjection. Uh, you know, where's where's that connection between true and authentic freedom versus living a lifestyle of obedience to the will of God, or even obedience? you know, in a, in a charitable sense to another person. Well, obedience, I don't know if there's a verses. I mean, do you really want to put a verses there? You're true. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> it the way you, you led that a little bit. Uh, yeah, because, you know, obedience even etymologically comes from to hear. It's to hear each other. Uh -huh. um, Beautiful. Yep. You know, we're, we're obedient to someone who has some reason to be, you know, some claim on us for some good reason. You know, we tend to think of obedience as just, um, you know, random despotism. Um, but, you know, to hear what it is you're called to in the situation of, you know, marriage, uh, right, in this relationship that, that you, you, oh, you listen to your, you know, you listen to your spouse in the most profound sense, um, you know, of what our vocation is together as a, as a household. Um, but also too, obedience to, to God is, you know, obedience to the one who knows every fiber of your being better than you do, who knows yeah. the in, inner every inner fiber of your spirit better than you ever could? Um, you know, so obedience is actually um, you know necessary component of of you know being free as yeah. as creatures. One of my one of my favorite reflections as of late, uh, a buddy and I were were sort of uh, exploring this um, on a on a trip a number of months ago. Is this concept that? Scripture identifies a number of different relationships that we have with God, and uh, you know Saint Paul identifies that uh, we, we were we were once a slave to sin, but no longer a slave to sin. Now we are a slave to Christ Jesus, right? A slave to righteousness, and uh, I think maybe that's that's one of the perspectives that oftentimes we would take uh, when it comes to moral theology. That that moral behavior is um, you know my willing slavery to Christ, right? That I'm, I'm choosing to, to follow, to follow the Lord. But I think while that's not a, not an incorrect starting point, maybe it's not the fulfillment of what a, of what a, a truly moral life entails. And, you know, Jesus goes on to, to communicate that relationship in a number of different ways. He, he, he later says, I, I no longer call you slaves or servants, but now friends. And in a certain way, yeah, I I am morally uh, beholden to my friends as uh, by because of my friendship. I have to behave in a certain way in order to maintain friendship. And then 
uh, of, of course, Jesus identifies sons and daughters. Like, yes, my relationship with God as it comes to that place where I identify that identity as son, or even, of course, sort of that fulfillment that we see in the Song of Songs and the close, the close of the book and Revelation that, that ultimately this is about, it's about a, a marriage, an intimacy of relationship where, where I, I truly exist in a place of like, I don't want to, I don't want to define morality by what I must do because of some obligation, but what I, what I must do because I'm motivated by love. Yeah. Right. You, you don't want to think of morality as being, um, what is it? Sort of the avoidance of sin, right? We, we understand the avoidance of sin by seeing the, the goal, the positive view of what it is we're called to. So like thinking about, yep. friend, thinking about friendship as well. I mean, there's a real way in which you can say like not being present to a friend who is going through tough times or even just not being present to a friend, just, you know, to share conviviality, to share, you know, life together. You could say in a way, yeah, I mean, this is immoral. I mean, you can say that, but it feels mm -hmm. weird, right? And it's that odd feeling of, I think we need to look at it as there is some kind of moral thing there, but it's almost, it's moral by being something more than moral. Just like yeah. when you read about friendship in someone, in a philosopher like Aristotle, right? It comes after he discusses justice. He said, you know, he kind of basically says, he says, it's like friendship isn't a virtue, but it's this thing that life wouldn't be worth living <laughs> without because we share, if we, if we, or if we lacked it. Um, and so, you know, in a sense, Christian morality is actually properly such by, it's like what it is by being more than moral, but it's not by being anti-moral. It's, it's yeah. like being super moral, uh, precisely yeah. because, you know, even our spiritual life in a sense falls under morality, right? Like yeah. spend time in prayer or, you know, in, in prayer in either the strict sense or the broad sense of, you know, meditative, quiet presence with our Lord is actually a question of a sense of morality, but it's, it's about dwelling with the beloved. So it is a, mm -hmm. it is a moral question. It actually falls to moral theology to talk about. Um, but you know, it's not the kind of thing you can sit down and say, well, you know, it's always tempting to say, well, how many minutes did I spend in prayer? I, I mean, that's where you, there are certain limitations, right. That we have to set for our life. Yeah. Things we must do um, as minimums, but if you try and always do the minimum, you're actually not going to live in line with what you're actually called to, to, to be as a Christian. Yep. And that, that obviously that, that parallel is easy to see in the context of human relationship, but for whatever reason, regardless of the, you know, the level of, uh, of spiritual maturity, I, I find that people continue to be tempted to kind of toe that line and keep the checklist when it comes to my relationship with the Lord. Well, the old Adam, I mean, the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the tinder of sin, uh, as the medieval theologians would say, the kind of underbrush is in the, is out in the woods. It's like always ready to, to flame back up. So we are always aware of that, that fact. Sure. Um, but that being said, it is a, it's a, it's a minimalistic view of the Christian life when it basically, if you live yeah. your life so as to avoid mortal sin, I mean, more than likely a, you'll probably fall into mortal sin. Uh, but also too, you're, you're, you're not engaging in the, the, the tr travail of love that you're supposed to be engaging in. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, let's 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 go there for a second. So earlier we were speaking about the the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and I'd say the the opposite maybe of the minimalistic Christian life would be would be a life marked by the gifts and the fruits of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. um, uh, how how do you see the connection between a full expression of the gifts of the Spirit in in the context of the practice of 
of moral morality or moral study even. Yeah. Um, so let's, they technically are perfections of, I mean, the fruits, for instance, are you know, acts of the, uh, of the Christian life and of the, uh, of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So let's just, um, you know, I, the problem is that I, I tend to want to always slip into the question of those gifts, like understanding, knowledge, wisdom. Those are the ones the mystics talk about. They're not unrelated to the moral life. Um, but let's think even just more broadly. When our Lord presents in the Sermon on the Mount, the moral life, right? And he sort of mm -hmm. he says, you know, the giving of one, ask for one cloak, give two, or very much in that same spirit elsewhere in the Gospels to forgive seven times, seven times 70, right? That, I mean, to me, that's an example of an indirect effect of the purification of justice in a Christian way. That when we think of any virtue, virtue, justice in general has to deal with having a ready will to give to others what's owed to them. That sounds, yep. uh, listeners, I guess, are on radio. They can't see me rolling my eyes a little. <laughs> it's a good definition. It is, but it sounds so cold, like paying a bill, right? Um, but the Christian Christian uh, justice, for instance, which is going to be influenced by the, 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 the theological virtues as well as the gifts, mm -hmm. uh, is marked by this superabundant mercy because basically the way God interacts with creatures is always first marked with mercy, actually, before it's marked with justice. Good Thomistic texts can show you that. In every work of God's justice, mercy is actually presupposed. Superabundance is presupposed, is what it means. Beautiful. He, yeah. We didn't need to exist, let alone we didn't need to be redeemed. So all of a sudden, that takes over with the measure of what our life is supposed to be like. Um, it's it's staggering, actually. Whenever you do an examination of conscience and you think about all the little, all the little sins that you have in your day-to-day -day life, you realize how impure your love is, right? You've got relatives that you, you have issues with. Um, that you, you know, maybe you've even, you know, gossip, you know, with your spouse or something, um, about, and that is so infinitely distant from the kind of just absolute purity. You know, someone mm -hmm. could say, philosopher could say, you know, you need to sometimes speak the truth. You do need to speak the truth, but there has to be a kind of merciful suffering and not using every chance to quote unquote, speak the truth to just, you know, fall into, you know, effectively it would be a form of detraction. Um, but I mean, you have to have a kind of absolute purity in those relationships. Um, yeah. Another example would be, you know, we think about like, even in religion, to have uh, piety, the gift of piety, purify mm -hmm. our religious observance. Now, look, I, as an ex-monk, I'm very much aware of how difficult it is to figure out what your prayer regime is supposed to be, depending on your household logistics, and your family. So there's no single thing, especially for the lay life here. But whenever you think of your prayer life as, you know, I made it to Sunday mass and I nodded at God in the morning. Um, <laughs> no, I let him know I woke up and that he still exists. Um, that is so different than like, than what we're actually called to by the, it's actually a question of justice, a Christian justice, which is truly religious, you know, will have throughout the day, a, a, some kind of, you know, liturgy of the day, which is your prayer life. And more and more should we actually desire that in the midst of yeah. both joys and travails, we should just be you know, taken by by wanting to be present to our Lord, not only in the sacrifice of the mass or divine liturgy, but but in the liturgy or in devotions. Um, these are actually all these are all actually moral matters and not just questions of spirituality, too. Yeah, lot, you can think of generosity, um, not only with your time, but yes, with your, your actual uh, financial with your treasure and detachment. All of that should be very obvious. Someone should be able to look at Christians and say there's something different about these people. And that's, yeah, that's, that's what the whole, gifts of the Holy Spirit are doing, instrumentalizing and elevating what would be merely natural virtue.
otherwise. Yeah, th- uh, that's beautiful. Let me make a little connection too. So uh, at Damascus, I, I guess w- we had a brief introduction to Damascus earlier, but the work of Damascus, we're, we're a missionary organization and uh, our mission is really bringing revival to the Catholic Church. And we do that primarily through ministry to young people, uh, middle school and high school students. And uh, in in the context of of real, present, in-your-face, evangelistic opportunity on a daily basis, uh, we see and, and, we, and we study and seek a, a, a better understanding and a deeper understanding of those, um, of those evangelistic gifts of the spirit as well that we see in the, in the new Testament expressed. And I love, you know, first Corinthians chapter 12, 13, 14 is one of my favorite little, little, uh, three for ones, right? Because you see this, this beautiful theology of some of the more um, extraordinary gifts of the spirit that are, that are used. They're extraordinary because they exist in the context of evangelization um, most explicitly. And, and we see, okay, what's, what's the use of, of gifts of prophecy or gifts of healing or gifts of tongues or miracles, right? Uh, Ultimately it, it's wrapped up in first Corinthians 13, which is the, the beautiful, like um, I'm a, I'm a, resounding gong and symbol, if not for love, that all of these things come from actually a moral obligation that I, I as a Christian, have a, have a, a moral obligation to love in the way that Christ loved. And uh, that's going to bring me to a place where I'm stretched beyond my comfort zone. Uh, and, and yeah, it's, it's, it's building a lifestyle that, that's founded on that purity of heart and intention that actually enables me to, to live the life of Christ. You're 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 gonna yeah, definitely be stretched because God wants to stretch your creaturely will to the to the the extent of His own love. I mean that's what charity is. Like you said, love as Christ mm-hmm. loved. To always be very careful here to emphasize this. Yes, the theological virtue of of charity of love really is like a kind of heart transplant that God wants you to be able to <laughs> to love with a. It really is a trinitarian love here yeah. below. It's like it's like a breaking in of heaven. You know, we were talking yep. about gifts, the gifts and the particular relationship to the resurrection. But um, yep. but even so, the theological virtues are already this beginning of eternity. We can still lose it, though, but it's a beginning of eternity. God wants to stretch our creaturely wills to make them divine so that we can get back <laughs> in our love. God, it's like God reaching through creation, and enabling us to love God with God's own love and to love others and lift creation up. In that way that St. Paul talks about the renewal of creation, which is groaning, waiting for the redemption of the sons and daughters of God to lift all yeah. creation up with God's own love. I mean, it really is God's own love, though. It's it's like the Trinity. Everything comes forth from the Trinity. Yep. And then everything yep. goes back to the Trinity. It's all gift. Pulling right? us in, pulling us in the way to 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 divinize us, to make us truly yeah. fine. Oh, God's so generous. That's fantastic. Yep. Um, I want to I want to wrap things up, uh, Dr. Matthew. Thank you for joining us on the show today. Gosh, what a what a fantastic conversation this has been. We could go all day. Uh, yeah, I could. These I, are uh, I could go on and on, and I, <laughs> I had to watch time just be a good dad and get your kids to yeah uh, piano. We don't do a lot of activities, <laughs> but this is my one daughter's activity, and so I had to make sure I'm on time. Tell me where we can uh, where can we find more about the book? Where can we where can we get the book? Yes, yeah, so you can go to uh, ascensionpress.com slash Catholic Morality. Um, it's also available, you know, other places that books can be found as well. Um, and yep. it is written, you know, you've got listenership, maybe a, you know, a lot, lot 
younger than I mean, even I'm starting to feel like an old man moving toward 40. It is written on a very accessible level. The book is yeah. very much written at the level of trying to, to use scripture to speak the truths of our divine vocation. Um, I mean, yeah. I have a other sources and I've got, there are end notes, but I'm not allowed to have footnotes because it's not an academic book, <laughs> not an academic I'll book. I'll share my secret too. Uh, on on Amazon, you can get a little preview of the book and get a taste ah, for your your writing true. style. So yeah. I'm excited to jump in a little deeper. Thanks so much for sharing today, and uh, and thank you for your passion around this topic. It's um, it's it's beautiful and necessary and profound and uh, really a gift for our for our church today. Let me uh, let me close this in prayer, uh, Dr. Matthew. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, thank you for the gifts that you've poured out on Dr. Matthew, on his family, uh, and on, uh, on the ministry of, of Ascension Press and, and here at Damascus. And Lord, I'm, I'm grateful for the witness of this uh, man of God who's laboring in the vineyard truly to bring people, as St. Paul says, through a renewal of their mind into a lifestyle of transformation. That word transformation, it's, it's only used a couple times in scripture. One of them's on the mount of transformation, transfiguration, where we were truly changed into your image and likeness. So Lord, I pray that uh, the, the impact of this work will be magnified and that as people come to read this, that they'll become more like you. Uh, Jesus, give us a hunger to be in ever closer relationship with you. And we pray for uh, Dr. Matthew's family and mine and for all each of our communities uh, and those who are listening today. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us, Doc, in today's show. And hey, I look forward to our next time to connect. This has been a great uh, start of relationship as well. Yeah, um, grateful hope, for your work. Hope so as well. Yeah, it was very nice.